I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by writer, podcaster, and filmmaker Emily Gagné, and author, screenwriter, and instructor of Black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA, Tanana Reeve Du. Throughout cinematic history, movies have looked back on themselves and created updated versions of their own tropes and ideologies. There are, of course, straight-up remakes and variations on the same story. Have a listen to our Return to Oz episode for more on that topic. But when you think about movies like 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's a direct homage-slash-tribute to 30 serials. However, in no moment does Indy or his actions wink to the audience that we all know this story. It's played straight and effectively, creating a new and enjoyable adventure. Although indie filmmakers had been winking for at least a decade, the 90s was a turning point for movies, with jaded baby boomers and Gen X filmmakers and screenwriters actively using audiences' familiarity with the way movie stories are supposed to go to make us laugh and to shock us, sometimes at the same time. 1996's Scream is the perfect example of this. Both of our movies today play into that audience self-awareness and do so effectively. But, Tanana Reeve, what do you think makes a movie work to have it wink, but still surprise us? Well, you have to have enough of a foundation under the feet of the film to sustain it as a straight story before the wink, right? So, um, Galaxy Quest is a good example of setting up a very, very familiar setting. You know, we've got a con. I go to conventions and fandom if you've been to comic-con if you've even you know it 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 felt real and true the actors angst and the conflicts between the actors all of that rang so true that you're in the story and you're believing the story and you're intrigued long before you understand that this is not going where you thought it was going Totally. And it's playing on the fact that like these obviously are filmmakers and writers who understand this culture and they understand exactly who they're writing for. And what the sort of the amount of inside jokes, we'll get into Galaxy Quest, but the amount of inside jokes, like if you are a Star Trek fan, are just wild in that movie. But to the point where... This is one of the issues I have with Marvel movie and Marvel movies and Star Star Wars movies now is the fan service is too overt. They're like, mm-hmm. oh look, now you're he's gonna say the thing that's become his catchphrase <laughs> that we now know. Wait for him uh, to make uh, the thing, um, and that doesn't happen here, right? Like in I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's because there was no Twitter back then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was just thinking, I actually just rewatched some of the Austin Powers movies the other day, and I was thinking about how, like, as a kid, I did not realize that this was a Bond parody. I just thought it was a hilarious movie. And I think, like, these movies, like Galaxy Quest in particular, like, they they make these inside jokes, but you don't have to know everything about fandom to understand it and to enjoy yourself. 
Agreed. You just you know? get super excited about it. I mean, we're going to be talking about Deep Blue Sea here as well. And that's kind of the issue. 99 is also a great year for horror. Um, this is also the year of Blair Witch, which a lot of people did not see coming. And it wasn't the first found footage horror film, but it was definitely a new perspective and a new way of people looking at films and what films could be. And when you watch it you're by yourself in the middle of the day, you're like, okay, it's a bunch of guys being boofus in the middle of the woods. But, you know, when, when you're surrounded by a bunch of people in a dark theater with all of that promotional material behind of this is real, you know, it's it's interesting to see how they're playing on your expectations of this is a real thing. Listen, Blair Witch Project, I, I was around when that first came out of the theaters <laughs> and that was scary as hell. And I'm not a huge fan of found footage. I think that it becomes overly self-conscious and there are so many situations, especially in horror, where like, dude, drop the camera and run, right? But <laughs> that should be Blair- the name of the documentary. <laughs> Put the camera down and run. <laughs> But Blair Witch <laughs> really pulls it off. I mean, my most vivid memory is how irritating uh, one of the characters was. <laughs> I think it was the director, but uh, I don't know, the director in the movie. But um, yeah, Blair Witch mm-hmm. did what it was supposed to do and understood the assignment, as the kids used to say. Exactly. And I, I think you're right. And then that's part of it, too, is because there, you don't actually know where it's going. And I think with the subversion of these ideas, it's, that's what makes us feel comfortable but uncomfortable at the same time, is you're like, oh, I know where this is going, and then it doesn't go that direction. All right, well, let's get into our first movie today because it falls straight into the shock category and actually had its original ending changed because of the audience being tired of the same old story. They also gave us more LL Cool J and less Parrot Sidekick, which I am okay with. Now, director Rennie Harlan was on a streak of flops, including 1995's Cutthroat Island, whose existence had contributed to taking down Coralco. So he figured why not tackle a proper disaster movie in hopes of busting some blocks on the way to box office glory. Besides, it had been a while since we'd had a solid shark movie, and CGI had come so far, and Thomas Jane was totally up to swim with actual sharks to get the shot. We'll just make sure he does it on the last day. Did Deep Blue Sea boy Rennie and Warner Brothers with a hit? We're going to find out. All right, Emily, do you want to give us the plot summary on this one? Yes, the shark science of it all is uh, very confusing. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but I will attempt it. Um, so scientists experiment with mako sharks' brains in an attempt to find new ways to treat Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and in doing this, they actually create super smart sharks hell-bent on revenge. <laughs> and what follows, I think, is kind of like a, a slasher movie at sea where everyone at the at this underwater facility is fighting for their lives against the literal jaws of death. Now, Terrain Henry, if you don't know this, but Emily and I are both on the same page that one day we are going to write a slasher movie on a cruise ship and we do not know how this hasn't happened yet. <laughs> hey, don't keep saying it out loud. You know, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> I think, exactly. I I think we're both willing willing it to into existence so we don't have to actually do the hard work. You know, we uh, know okay, as long as that's your plan. <laughs> now, now you picked this one, Tananari. What does this one mean to you? Like, how do you, what do you remember of it? You know, what's so funny about Deep Blue Sea is that my memory of the movie does not match at all what the movie is. Because <laughs> yep. in my memory of the movie, Samuel L. Jackson gets killed in the first 10 minutes. And I was actually shocked to realize it's more than an hour in. It's like more than halfway through the movie before he's standing at the edge of the shark tank making a Great speech. That's what makes this movie hysterical. I was recently on Roy Wood uh, Jr.'s podcast and they were saying like, what's the funniest moment in horror movies? And I didn't think of this, but one of the hosts said, when Samuel L. Jackson dies in Deep Blue Sea, it's the because, it, talk about subverting expectations. He was the biggest star in the movie. He seemed to be the lead of the movie. And I learned when I was a little mm-hmm. kid 
the lead, the hero doesn't die. Okay, well, that was true until I saw John Wayne's The Cowboys. And then my mom had to explain to me, sometimes the hero does die. <laughs> but it, it really, it's such a bait and switch, so to speak. Ha 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 ha. Shark bait, that is. <laughs> and I, I love the, the, the playfulness of that subversion of expectations. And I also love how you can con contrast that to the earnestness of the phony shark science. Like, wow, we are really believing that we are watching before our eyes <laughs> that if you inject a brain with Alzheimer's with these shark enzymes, it's starting <laughs> to wake up and work again. What are you talking about? Uh, Michael Rappaport is a, as a scientist also. I guess he's not a scientist. He's he's one of the crewmen. Okay, yeah. I was going to say that was kind well, of a stretch. They introduce yeah. him peeing into the wind. And I love that Samuel Jackson line of like, how smart can he be? He's peeing into the wind i'm like okay that's really funny <laughs> it's a romp you know my my, my stepdaughter nikki loves 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 shark movies this is probably except for jaws okay jaws is the og but in terms of shark attack movies deep blue sea has got to be way up on the list in terms of its shark on human action the use of humor <laughs> uh juxtaposed with great you know thrills and suspense i i hate uh water i mean yeah, I have, I guess, like a lot of people fear of drowning. Yep. So watching people like constantly on the edge of drowning is very anxiety inducing for me. So you've got the great horror heartbeat. But then, yes, LL Cool J, he survives, which as the executive producer of Horror Noir, History of Black Horror, I can tell you, uh, doesn't always happen to the Black characters. And they they disposed of Samuel L. Jackson and that glorious, I can't even be mad at it. It was so glorious the way they did it. But LL Cool J is still there to hold up the mantle. So it all works out. I love that LL Cool J even makes reference to the fact that that's what happens to characters of color in these movies. He's yes. like, I am not yes. going to be that guy. I know what happened. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's not taking itself too seriously uh, as a film, although the characters are taking themselves very seriously. Now, are you familiar with how this did originally end? I don't remember now. No, tell me. So as Saffron Burroughs survives and that there is obviously like a love scene between her and Thomas Jane and they added way more of that. And then when they screened it for audiences, now LL Cool J died as well partway through. <gasps> He did oh. die. So at the very end there, he sacrifices himself so that they can kill everybody. I know, oh, I, no. know I know. Not the sacrificial marriage. <laughs> you betcha. Yeah, no. yeah. And so, that, of course, you will be very happy to know that audiences reacted extremely poorly to that. And they said, this is not happening. We're not going along with this. And what they what was very surprising to Renny Harlan is that they were reacting really, really negatively to Saffron Burroughs' character. Because mm. they were like, she's the one who put them all in danger. She is, we understand you know, the greater good, all that, but we are not on board with the idea of the greater good. So they actually took out a bunch of scenes that made her much more relatable and just made her as stone cold evil and like calculating and scientific as they could. Um, and then added LL Cool J as the, as the hero and killed her off. And uh -oh. I'm like, that's actually really smart because normally really good feedback doesn't come from audience reactions as we are finding on this show. I am pretty blown away by all of that for so many reasons. I mean, it makes perfect sense, but you would think how are audiences understanding this, you know, instinctively. Okay, so from a story sense, in terms of horror, the things that open the door to horror are usually some kind of a trauma, like grief, like you see that in like a hereditary or a midsummer. Are there so many horror movies where grief is the thing that opens the door to the uncanny? But the other thing is transgression. 
right? Yeah. And so much horror is about uh, morality tales. You know, that's why in those 80s slashers, if you were smoking, drinking, having sex, you're going to get killed by the slasher. Well, she was the one who made the transgression, okay? Yeah. She was the one who decided the shark brains aren't big enough to get the enzyme, the proteins that we need. So we're going to make the shark brains bigger, okay? <laughs> but what that also means <laughs> <That's the science. laughs> is that the sharks are smarter. So now you're not just dealing with a, a deadly killing machine, you're dealing with a deadly killing machine with an agenda, with intelligence, who can track you, trap you. It's, yeah, so absolutely she needed to die. I'm going to make the assumption both of you have seen Jaws 4, yes? Uh, it's a stretch of yes. a, maybe. Uh, <laughs> a long time ago. Asking me to remember it is another matter. What? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's the movie that most people remember Michael Caine was shooting, so he wasn't available to pick up his Oscar for Hannah and her sisters. It looked like he was having a nice beach vacation in his Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but what's fascinating to me about Jaws 4 and the reason I love that one so much is that the shark is like possibly sentient like it makes uh, phone calls to get uh, Brody's son out on the okay, water. Okay, no. Yeah, what? Watch that movie. There is no way like they don't explicitly say it but there's no way the shark isn't calling the house to get him out on the water. That's what happens. So I'm like this to me seems like the logical evolution of like sharks are scary enough so what do you do? You give them opposable thumbs. That's what you do. Well, you know, at least it's... in this film they gave some kind of rationale for why the shark would be so smart. Yeah, I don't know. Just for well enough to say that they did, but you would have needed to come up with a hell of a lot of rationale to make any even sense of that. How does a shark even use a phone? I'm so confused. I don't know either. I, can, I, don't know. I just think, again, there's just a moment. A I mean, waterproof phone? Like a waterproof phone? Okay, whatever. <laughs> it hired yeah. a buddy. Don't question it. So don't this is also, it. we're talking about giant creatures. How do the giant creatures hold up for y'all? Like, are we feeling that, like, these look good? Is it kind of hit or miss? What do we think? I was going to say that I think the issue here is that they did a little bit of practical effects and they did a little bit of CG. And so when you see the CG next to the practical effects, it just it kind of confuses you. And I feel like I looked at all those photos of on set, like them making the sharks and it all looks really real and it is practical, but like the, even the Samuel L. Jackson death, like that doesn't look the best. It's, and that's kind of where the humor comes from is that it's like, it's so crazy and over the top and you know that a shark would not actually do that. So I feel like, I feel like there's moments where the sharks look good. And then there's moments where you're like, Oh, Okay. I was, okay. you know, that's interesting. I guess I was being charitable because I really did not <laughs> even notice whether the CGI was matching up. I'm glad you mentioned the practical effects because I think a lot of the film does capture that real dread, like when there's an object. And I think on one level, our eyes, even with really good CGI, we perceive that an object is not real. So I really don't like horror where CGI is the monster, you know, for the most part. I, I'm not afraid of CGI in the way that I would be about like a string, like a, a practical effect across someone's shoulder is scarier than a horde of flying beasts, right? Because, yeah. because we perceive it's just not real. That, that That's not happening. But this movie to me, I have to say, just as a, a casual viewer, it, it holds, the CGI holds up enough 
to carry the film and make me believe. I'm all about the unsung heroes of these movies. And Walter Conti, for me, is like one of the unsung heroes. Are you familiar with him and his work and who he is? I am not. He is the premier effects guy for underwater creatures and creatures in general. So Free Willy, that's him. Star Trek VI, The Whales, that's how he got his job, is he did the, he started out with The Whales. He did the Anaconda, which to this day is still the like biggest articulated robot. And he designed a bunch of the um, underwater equipment and like the movability parts of James Cameron's submarine. You know, when James Cameron was like really into submarines, he designed a bunch of the components of that so that they could film the way they did on it, which is wild to me. But I love people who just specialize Mm. in one thing. He's like, I'm really good at underwater robots. That's what I do now. (laughs) And I imagine underwater shooting is super difficult, you know, so so hats off. I think it's a terrific job. But that was the issue with Jaws as well, right? That's why you see so little of Bruce in Jaws is because they couldn't figure out how to make it work and how to shoot it and how to how to do it. And that's part of what makes this movie work is I think you're now able to see the sharks and that's what they thought they had the one up on of Jaws. Like you're never going to be able to beat Jaws. As you said, never. it's the OG, it's the gold standard. It's just what it is. Yes. Com- how do you compare? How do you compete in a way uh, so that people look at you favorably on that side of the bar and you see the whole shark and the shark looks good? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Spielberg would have killed for the effects that were available <laughs> to make Deep Blue Sea. But uh, like you said, he, he worked around it, didn't need it. It's still, Jaws is still the OG. Uh, now, did you, either of you notice all of the Jaws references that are in this? Like the, the license plate that they take out of the shark, oh. right? That's the same. Yeah, what are the other ones? All of the the sharks die in the exact same way, in the same order as all of the sharks in the Jaws movies. Oh, so that's the electrical. I'm about the, 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 the grabbing the electrical wire and getting electrocuted. Definitely recognizing that. Great. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But again, that's like the the winking thing where I'm like, that's appropriate because like you didn't even know. Right. And it's still and it's cool to you want to watch sharks explode. And by that time, they've definitely earned it. Yeah. <laughs> now, something I'm curious about here that I, I I thought was really interesting was um LL Cool J obviously did the soundtrack for this and we are of a of a time when like there was still a rapper R&B song often associated with a song there were or like a ballad. Um of course Will Smith did one for everything he did and uh this one has deepest bluest my hat is like a shark fin, which I love so much it makes me so happy um are we familiar where my hat is like a shark fin comes from no you're stumping me today if okay. this was a game show i'd be losing <laughs> it's all good this is where i get <laughs> i'm like i need to know why his hat is like a shark fin and what that is a reference to he did a song in 1987 called i'm bad which had a single line that said mcs can't win i make them rust like tin they call me jaws my hat is like a shark fin ah. and he is riffing on his own song from 1987 which he would expect you all to know okay i did not know that <laughs> and you know it just evokes a simpler time in uh in hip-hop like sort of the party rap era so <laughs> that's fun why don't we do yeah. those anymore like those like a song associated things that like not only have an association but often will give you the plot line or like do a full character description when did we stop doing that well i don't know i don't know <laughs> 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 
I I miss it. I miss it. I was watching the music video for Deepest Bluest today, and it's like it's like he's on the set with other like like swimming ladies, and he like turns into a shark at one point in <laughs> the video. Like it's just crazy. And I was like, this is so fun. I love this. I I know a movie's gonna be real if there's like a music video with the stars in it, and with like not just clips from the film, but like shot on the set. And I felt like this this video and this song. It's just like the icing on the cake, you know, especially because he survives at the end and he actually not only survives, but he's the one that kills that final shark. Like he's the, he's the one that's like making that action happen. So to have him have this song, it's just it's just a it's like a with the editing. For me. It's like a black horror sleeper movie. You know, I wouldn't technically ah. call it black horror, <laughs> even though sometimes, <laughs> you know, and everything is in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes if you have a black lead. You might consider it black horror, but I'm not sure there's any kind of a social sensibility <laughs> to this movie at all. It's just, it's, and frankly, it's literally an accident that he survives. I think if if that had been the intention from the beginning, there might have been more hints that LL Cool J was going to be the hero, starting from sort of closer to the start of the film. Uh, so I'm not going to give it the uh, the black horror label, but it's close. It's very close. Well, for people who have not as of yet seen Horror Noir, which I do recommend everyone go do, because um, it's it's very, very good. Um, can you kind of explain what exactly black horror would be? Like, what, what would earn this the label of black horror? That is a good question. And I teach a black horror class at UCLA. But like I said, it could be really subjective. A student might be able to write a paper on this and explain to me, LL Cool J as a cook representing <laughs> historical roles as servants <laughs> rising to the level of leadership and finally killing the shark represents, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe, you know, but okay. But in all seriousness, um, black horror is usually horror that is by black creators, although not always with black leads. And it can be the gamut. It can be the gamut from get out, obviously, which is, sort of the gold standard of black horror in the sense that it really is about racism as the monster. That is the whole point of the movie. Uh, whereas there are other black horror films, like there's a movie called Sweetheart by J.D. Dillard, speaking of sea creatures, where it's just a biracial actress by herself on an island battling some kind of creature. And that is revolutionary in its own way, because there's no reason she has to be of color at all. Anybody could have played that part, This, but this was a Black director, and this was this decision, and therefore it creates sort of a revolutionary feel because it combats erasure. Black and, and Latinx viewers over-index in terms of their love for horror, if you look at the statistics, but until very recently, were incredibly underserved by the casting and by the creators, and we're starting to see a change in that. So whereas Black viewers used to be perfectly happy to watch movies, even if they weren't in it at all, or in movies where they were in it in very unfortunate ways, like The Shining, which mm. changed the book so that the Black cook again, you know, um, Mr. Holleran gets killed as soon as he walks through the door. Uh, and we were just kind of expected to sit and take that. Uh, whereas now there are so many opportunities for actors and creators. We can just exist in a horror movie. We can survive a horror movie. We can be something other than tropey roles like the magical Negro, the sacrificial Negro, which unfortunately it sounds like LL Cool J was destined to be until audiences intervened. The magical Negro who only exists because they know voodoo or magic stuff, mm. which is also something you see a lot with Native American indigenous actors. Like if you ever see an indigenous actor in a horror movie, you know 
that whole point is just to be magical. I really appreciate you bringing that up as well here, because you could also look at the Samuel L. Jackson character and be like, oh, that's what they're doing there. But the fact that he's playing the, I think it's like the richest man in the world. So he's got that status. He's going toe to toe with these scientists in every scene. Like at no point do they make him look stupid or ignorant. Yeah. He's totally like on point the entire time. The speech he gets before he dies. I mean, no one delivers a speech like Sam Jackson, right? No, it's like his version of like, we. why are there so many mother effing sharks in this mother effing (laughs) lab? Okay, but as to your point, (laughs) he does not feel like a typical sacrificial Negro or, or, I mean, first of all, he wasn't sacrificing himself. He, he was making a speech. He was doing his Newt Rockney uh, bit for very old football fans doing his speech. (laughs) And he was at that time. And, you know, for years after one of the biggest box office draws in the world. So they are completely subverting expectations because as the audience, you just know he's going to survive this movie. He's going to lead them all to, to, to freedom and, and safety, but now he's shark lunch. Well, they originally offered him the the cook role, eh? Before they give it to LL Cool J, they offered him the cook role. And his representatives, before it even got to him, his representatives took one look and went, that's not happening. Oh, Thanks, no, guys. no, no. Not Samuel L. I mean, Jackson. We are in a world post-Pulp uh, Fiction. Like, yeah, completely yes. unacceptable. So, yeah. So he looked at that. But then he was like, I kind of want to be in a shark movie. And this is also the era of Sam Jackson being able to be like, guys, I want to be in Star Wars. Put me in Star Wars. Guys, I want to, you know. <laughs> exactly. Just a lot of that going on, which is great. I'm like, I want to get to that point in my career. Everybody does. Um, but he went back and he's like, okay, well, what can I play? And he's the one who actually play a push to have the character uh, of status, to be like that character that was like the richest guy in the world. And he helped create that backstory with the writers and with uh, Rennie Harlan. This movie had eight writers on one draft. There's only three credited writers, but like... This is something they really wanted to make where they were like, let's let's figure out exactly what this movie is. Eight writers is a lot of writers. Well, in fairness, because of the depth of the scientific knowledge necessary, <laughs> you can see why they would need so many screenwriters. <laughs> Well, the three credited writers, one of them wrote the story of, and of course, the story of always gets credited at that point. And this was an Australian uh, who had actually witnessed a shark attack, Mm. which scared the crap out of him. Mm. And uh, so he kind of wrote a variation on this. But then they and then they decided they wanted it super sharks to make it scarier. And that's when they brought in this husband and wife uh, team, Donna and Wayne Powers. They are now divorced at the time they were married. Um, They also wrote the Italian Job remake is the other one they're famous for so obviously hollywood was coming to them for like you need something complex with a lot of moving parts but it's still like popcorn cheesy these two here you go and just That's enough right. characterization to keep us as the viewers on the hook so it's not exactly. action 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 really this movie is just missing a mini race i really just need minis to be racing about it would be fantastic as an italian job <laughs> reference for people who haven't seen that <laughs> okay, i thought you meant like a tiny little race i'm like what is a mini race <laughs> <laughs> a mini race please i'm putting a mini race in all my movies now tonight that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> i'm I'm actually though surprised like I I watched through the end credits of this movie because I'm so used to these days there being like Mm. an end credit scene and I was like baby sharks there's gotta be baby sharks did I forget that there's like baby sharks at the end of this and there's not which I appreciate and I know there's been sequels to Deep Blue Sea but I don't know that they're like totally related 
to this one. And I'm kind of glad that it's its own little contained story that we like know that they're going to get away in the end. And it's just we're just done and we can just leave happy knowing that LL Cool J and Thomas Jane have made it to the end. Um, but rip that <laughs> too bad for the parrot. Yeah. The poor parrot. All right. On that note, I'm going to take us into our next film. So when we come back, it's a deeply respectful handling of nerd culture. That's coming up after the break. William Shatner's relationship with Star Trek is a complicated one. From telling fans to get a life in the context of a 1986 SNL skit to embracing the convention circuit wholeheartedly in later years, I can only imagine what it must be like to have a life of impressive acting achievements and longevity in the film and TV industry primarily defined by 79 episodes of a TV show everyone was sure would fail. Now, Shatner and his relationship to Star Trek inspired the writers of the stands-on-its-own spoof Galaxy Quest, which they based on a story of Shatner overhearing fans say he was washed up and all his co-workers hated him while in a washroom at a comic convention. It's a moment that plays out with Tim Allen's Jason Nesmith early in the film and helps set off the real adventure this crew of pretenders would be about to have. Now, I saw this film for the first time for the podcast, but I have to say it is an adventure I totally want to go on again. Now, Tananari, if I know this is an adventure you love to be on and you've been on many times. You said, what, that for this podcast, this is the first time you've seen this movie? That is correct. What? Oh, first, <laughs> I know, I know. I, all thoughts have just left my head now. I can't even. <laughs> so uh, all right, Galaxy Quest, 1999, an absolute love letter to fans of Star Trek and any kind of a, a series that has just a completely fanatical fan base who goes out to conventions to lavish the stars with their affections. Only we get to see from the very beginning behind the scenes that all is not happy among those cast members because Tim Allen's character, who is the William Shatner of the piece, gets all the glory and all the attention. And the others are just kind of along for the ride, but it's a ride way more than they were expecting when they're actually recruited by an alien race called the Thermians to reenact their fiction as real battle <laughs> to save their, their race. So that is Galaxy Quest. A bunch of, let's call them washed up actors, get to become real life heroes. That was very good. I'm, well done. I, I had a high bar to uh, live up to. <laughs> Listeners need to know that we just threw that at you before you we really started. Did. You came off that <laughs> on the top of your head and it was really good. Because um, this is yeah. like, it's it's a simple, but it's also like a complicated premise, right? Like it's uh, the fact that they came up with this idea of like real live stakes and fake fake like the fakest of the fake actors and they toss them in um for me movies like this and we've talked about this in the podcast previously live or die on the believability of the camaraderie and how the camaraderie is set up here and i think this is one of the best examples of setting up relationship dynamics of an ensemble comedy i've seen in a long time it's very impressive how you know who these people are immediately without making them tropes i mean absolutely like out of the gate uh i know and recognize and believe in these characters in part because we all kind of know shatner and his relationship yeah. i didn't realize that that scene in the bathroom in galaxy quest was actually inspired by real events but it makes perfect sense because i've been yeah. to this convention <laughs> i've i've been in a <laughs> lieutenant uhura costume 
Okay, so yes, I, yes, I speak yes, yes. cosplay. I understand the, the fanaticism, but also <laughs> you can't help but notice in the clip that Sigourney Weaver's cleavage is the star of her costume, and you know, <laughs> and that's like going back to Star Trek. Why were they were they wearing mini skirts exactly on the bridge of a starship? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just it just lands everybody from the the fans in line uh the the kid who who loves everybody justin long's character uh who's just a super fan and and gets so crushed when he meets his idol and his idol is in a bad mood don't meet your idols ever kids just ready to Ugh. rip out his own heart because if he has to go to one more convention he's just going to roll up uh, curl up and die I believed everybody. I believed all these characters. And uh, of course, everyone loves uh, Enrico uh, Colantoni, who plays Mathisar, um, the <laughs> one of the Thermians who who in, tries to enlist them to come to help. So it's just, it's a great ensemble. It's characters we recognize and believe in. And it's so much fun. Yeah, I've I've seen this. I saw this when I was a kid. My, my dad is a big uh, Star Trek fan. So I watched some of the things uh, some of the movies, some of the the shows, but I was gonna say that one of the things that I really like about this movie, and I feel like wouldn't be the same if this movie was made today, is that like, although they kind of make fun of the fans at the beginning, it's like we need that Justin Long character to help yes. them save the day. I, I want you to know that I'm not a complete brain case, okay? I understand completely that it's just a TV show. Wait a minute, stop, stop for a second, stop. Wait. No ship. It's all real. Oh my god, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and they like they say like these are important people and it's it's cool that they're so into this. It's actually like good that they're so into this. It, it helps save the day. I think that that's like that's just so different than how we view fandom today or some people view fandom today where they like say oh these are just total dorks or whatever, but I I think that's the mainstreamness of the fandom these days, but I felt like like I wanted to know from both of you sort of like as people that have done sort of the convention thing as fans but also as like artists like did you feel like this was like validating that sort of experience? I mean, holy cow, yes. Although I will say as a disclaimer, I've never been that big a fan, okay? <laughs> I mean, when I, <laughs> I dressed up as Lieutenant Uhura to do an award <laughs> ceremony, but I would not, you know, I'm not one of those, I know every inch of the enterprise and I know how to speak Klingon, which is like getting to like a whole level of fandom. And that's Justin Long's character. And it's it's this really weird uh, dichotomy because on the one hand, Justin Long gets that it's just a tv show he knows that but it's not just a tv show to him and at one point he's like i knew it was real you know it's like because it, it when you really really love uh something especially that you watched in childhood it goes so deep and it is so real to you and so inspirational to you that in some ways that fan is the character who's best equipped to deal with the situation because it's always been real to him and to the actors, it was just a job. So Justin Long, I feel like does a, as you said, it's a very respectful, very enthusiastic betrayal. And because Justin Long is quite possibly one of the most likable human beings on earth, like he's up there with like Tom Hanks for being that approachable yes. goofy sort of thing. I think that really serves the character, but he had actually never seen as episode of Star Trek. He was not a Star Trek guy at all. He'd never been to a convention and they gave him the documentary Trekkies to go watch. Have you seen this documentary? No, but I can imagine it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I have seen it several times. It has a number of like notable quotables in it. It's very fun. But I don't know if it's as respectful of the culture as it is here. Uh, for sure, they're definitely portraying 
um, perhaps some of the more enthusiastic people in that documentary and not necessarily, even though they're, it's actual things they're doing it, the way they've edited it maybe doesn't give them the best light and the best representation. Um, but it's interesting he would look at that and then be able to be like, oh, this is why this person is into it, but this is why we also love these people. Right? Mm. How do I make this an approachable, um, charming aspect of it, you know? Well, he totally captured it. He totally captured his character, uh, who his character is, and he's a lot of the, the heart and soul of the film. Yeah, well, I think too about like the little things you don't even think about, like Alan Rickman's character, who's playing this like complete grump, too good for this, I went to Juilliard kind of character, I guess Rada in his case. Um, and he, he wears his headpiece throughout the entire movie, even, <laughs> even when he's at home answering the phone. Like thus is his commitment to the character. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! That is a little sick. Uh, <laughs> but hysterical. When you think about that love-hate relationship, at least consciously more hate-hate that he had for that role, I hadn't even noticed that he was always wearing the headpiece. And he has, the, I, he has such a tremendous redemption arc as an actor who merges with his character all of the all of the uh, actors have opportunities to become the heroes that they were in the show but most memorably i i would say is alan rickman's character especially given his loathing of it how queasy he was about it how he felt like he had lost his chance at true um importance as an actor because of this choice he made as a younger man that has haunted him his entire career. And he actually gets to say his catchphrase and mean it and practically make us all cry by saying, by Grapthar's hammer, you shall be avenged. And we feel it. It's not just dialogue. We feel it. We're all stirred by it. And that's that's the power of art. No matter what you're training, where you came from, as actors, as artists, as writers, you can't control how or when readers or fans interact with your work. You sometimes have no idea that some little piffle that you did 20 years ago has changed someone's life. The lead singer of the Mountain Goats, uh, John Darnielle, talks about that. And he says when people thank him so much for helping them, he says, no, I gave you the tools to help themselves. And I, I like that approach towards it. Mm. And that's the point of art, right? It's like, yeah, here's here's the door. You, you're the one who has to walk through it and figure out how to unlock it and get through. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point to Nanarif. Um, it, it's interesting, too, the, you talk about the seriousness of acting and a lot of this there's there was a big path to this movie getting made, but the casting as well. So Guy uh, Guy Ritchie, not Guy Ritchie. I was watching another movie with him today. Uh, <laughs> Guy Guy Fleegman. <laughs> there we go. Uh, played by Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell got offered the role, and he didn't so want good. to do it um, because he was very early in his career. This is one of his first like big roles, and he was very determined he was going to be like a Robert De Niro, totally serious, <laughs> winning multiple Oscars thing. And he was scared that this was going to like. Uh, grab Thar's hammer, you know, mess up his career, that this was going to be all people could see him up. Because as Emily mentioned, we didn't look at fandoms or this kind of thing in this way at that time, right? This would have been considered a very niche film. Um, and then he kind of looked at the rest of Robert De Niro's over up until that point and was like, oh, no, he's totally played doofuses and been like these and done really funny roles to great success. And it's just another facet of acting and how people can 
uh, can cl- grasp onto a performance. And uh, it, when he is freaking out in this movie, you need a serious, very, very accomplished actor to be able to handle those freakout sessions. He's amazing in this. He's so funny. Because my character is important enough for a last name, because I'm going to die five minutes in. Die. You have a last name. Do I? he's incredible like i i feel like he's almost a standout in this Mm. movie to be honest like i i when i rewatched it because i i'd seen it a few times i was like he is so perfect at being inserted into this strange situation and reacting where like the rest (laughs) of the cast sort of like has experience from being on the show and he's like i've only been on a couple episodes and i love that his arc is that he's only been he's had these bit parts he's been like a red coat or whatever and now at the end of the movie he gets a real part because he's that and 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 like um justin long's character he lives and breathes it and he adapts so well to the transition between um fiction and reality. Well, he's based on actor Guy Vardaman, who was uh, several no-name extras in the original series and The Next Generation, but he was also the stunt stand-in double for both Wesley and Data. Oh. Uh, so it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. again, one of those like little things that like, if you know, you know of the the little Easter eggy for the big fans. Um, but if you don't, you know, he's just, we all know what a red coat is. That, I believe, by 99 had sort of answer, entered the public lexicon. Like, South Park was doing yes, jokes about red absolutely. Shirts, right? And, um, he he just he inhabits it and it's you know as someone who watched the original run of star trek i was never really what i would call a hardcore trekkie but just deep appreciation for those actors on the fringes who 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 get a chance to really shine um i don't know if your listeners know this there's actually a whole documentary about the making of galaxy quest called never surrender and you know all films have twists and turns in their creation and this one is no exception it went through a lot of hands before it uh it finally got made and it's amazing to think and probably like with uh deep blue sea and all those screenwriters and i can just imagine how many drafts it never ceases to amaze me that such a chaotic process that's fraught with false starts and disappointments which is the very definition of trying to get a movie made can actually rise up and be great. This is where it gets really weird. So this was an early DreamWorks film. This is when DreamWorks was just starting up and they had uh, Katzenberg had left Disney and was determined to like put, throw up the middle finger to them and I'm going to make my own thing. So they greenlit this, the the script, with yes. um, Harold Ramis directing it. And Harold Ramis was like, I am not working with any more comedians after having worked with Robin Williams. And apparently that was a disaster. And he didn't want anyone associated with any comedy or with any sci-fi franchise anywhere near it. So Sigourney Weaver, even though she heard about and was like, I want to be in this, was like, it's off the table. And he'd worked with her before in Ghostbusters, right? So he was he was like, Harold, come on. So in contradiction to this whole not wanting a comedian, um, the studio was really, really pushing for Tim Allen because Tim Allen had just gotten off Home Improvement. That was over. The Santa Claus was one of the biggest movies in the world. They were pushing him as a movie star. And so they were like, we feel like he's going to be perfect for this. And that, at that mm. point, he, Harold Ramis just went, I'm out. Which is a good thing, because then it was taken over by the director who took it over, and promptly uh, DreamWorks got occupied with Gladiator, because Gladiator was going tens of millions of dollars over budget, and Oliver Reed had just died, and they were like, what are we going to do with this juggernaut and figuring out what's going on? So they didn't pay attention to the weeks and weeks of filming that was happening with this other movie on the other side. When they get back to Galaxy Quest, they watch some of the dailies and they freak out, because what they thought they were buying was a space 
baseball-style spoof, big and over-the-top and Mel Brooksian, and that's not what they were getting dailies of. They were getting something, like, totally straight like we see. So they were like, oh, shit, what are we going to do with this? So they were like, well, we'll make it a kid's <sighs> movie, and we'll pit it against Stuart Little, which is why, like, all of – there's no swearing in this. All of it's taken out. It's why um, Sigourney Weaver's uh, shirt is unbuttoned, like, significantly more in the later scenes is because they cut a scene where she's seducing the enemies um, because, they, yeah, that's now out. Um, but, yeah, they recut the entire thing and redubbed it all to take all of that out to make it a kid's movie. And then they released it in theaters with, like, almost no marketing. I'll get into, the, like, the weird marketing stuff they did do with no marketing. And the first week it did insane. And the next week it did even more. And then it just kept grossing because the word of mouth of how good this thing was, what it was doing for fandom, there was nothing else like it. Um, and Jeffrey Katzenberg actually called the director and said, mm. I am so sorry. We did not market this better. Wow. Has that ever happened before when they apologize for the lack of marketing? <laughs> That's yeah. a whole conversation. But yeah, it's a great one, a great Cinderella story for this film. And this also, I think, found its home, like many 90s movies on the home video circuit, oh, on yeah. the, you know, the sleepover circuit, we call it, where it's like you can you can pick this up and give it to your kids. But here's the two pieces of marketing they did do, which I'm like, this seems insanely expensive. And someone somewhere knew what this was, is the first one, there was a fake documentary that aired on E!, which they did the same thing for the Blair Witch Project. It's available on YouTube. Um, like, that it's about the TV show as if the TV show was real. Oh, and that's they played great. this. Yeah, it's amazing. They played the half hour documentary. So that exists um, with a bunch of uh, all the footage of like them on the sets and stuff. And then the second thing is that there was a full website, like early late 90s website, which contained in-depth episode Whoa. summaries of That's every great. single episode someone took the time and i'm like how much money would that have cost? Like, that's wild to me mm. that you would take the time to do that and not run a TV. <laughs> it's almost as if <laughs> someone what, what, in the publicity department became obsessed with this show and yes. went down the same kind of rabbit hole that the fans of a real show would in terms of just creating, which I need this to be real. I just, I can't. I can't breathe unless there's an episode guide. <laughs> I love it because this is like sort of the days before the box set, right? So like you might not even be able to get a hold of that unless you'd been religiously taping everything as it aired on VHS. You might not have the episodes. You'd need the episode guides, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk just for a second about the production design, because that's one of the reasons I think this movie also succeeds. So it was done by Linda DeSena, um, and her sci-fi resume is insane. She worked on the original Star Trek movie. She worked on Blade Runner. She worked on Buckaroo Banzai. Like, it is wild. And she was in with Spielberg and Zemeckis. I think she worked on Back to the Future Part Two as well. This movie, I think, captures... The it's the same thing Alien does really well, where the sets feel mm. lived in. None of this feels plastic. All of it feels real, including the spaceships. What did you guys well, think? I'm watching uh, right above me now the scene where they first sit on the deck and they realize, oh, my gosh, the set is now real. These controls actually work and they're guiding the ship uh, badly out of the port. Uh, yes, absolutely convincing. I'm not surprised at all. I didn't know about that, uh, Bonafides, in terms of Star Trek but it feels like a big screen science fiction movie. 
like any big screen science fiction movie done well. And that's a, a big part of the success because you, you take that bridge from going to a convention where everybody loves this fantasy and now we get to experience it for real as actors and as an <laughs> audience. And it's in the Thermians with that crazy clapping they do. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just such a good movie and it looks great. It does. It does not just the the uh, production design, but like even the like alien, I cannot remember his name. T- tell me what his name is though main like uh antagonist the alien looks great like he looks awesome and i feel like uh, the little creatures that they run into are a little more cg style but (laughs) i uh, they're a little bit but but that's kind of the fun of it but i i really felt like this holds up in a way that so many other movies that are made today i don't think will hold up in another like 25 years it just it looks great and it looks like star trek but it it is different at the same time exactly. like different enough that you believe that this is a real show within this movie um but you recognize that sort of reference in there um absolutely i love sets that are collaborative and this seems like this director was really really open to all sorts of input and uh, enrico colantoni is actually the one who came up with the language of the thermians in his audition he came in and did like the whole mm. the, he created the language like they lucked out, as you were saying, the mm. chaos of the, of the product. Somehow this all fell into place. Doesn't she talk? Her translator is broken. <laughs> Okie dokie. Uh, the Thermian we all grew to love, uh, played by Enrico uh, Colantoni. That's amazing that he nailed this in the audition. No wonder he got the part. And it's, it's a kind of language like you're not used to using your voice box in this way. You know the words, but you don't quite understand <laughs> the flow of speech yet. And it's it's fantastic. Missy Pyle for me is an MVP here. I love her, period. But that was supposed to be, it was between her and Jennifer Coolidge. And I do not know what world I want to live in more if it continues to be Missy Pyle or if it was Jennifer Coolidge with her blank, blank stare. I feel like Jennifer Coolidge could have like stole the movie in a different way because like anytime she's on screen, I'm just like gravitating towards her. So I I feel like it was good for Missy and it probably like helped her career too because she was sort of like, you know, coming up. So she is her and Tony Shalhoub together. They're so great their little romance is like so great and weird and fun just like another twist there's so many storylines going on actually in this film like there's so many character developments that like you care about everybody by the end of this movie and that Um, little cross uh species uh relationship reminds me a lot (laughs) of the original mission you know gene roddenberry with star trek when he creates that bridge i mean we might not think much of it now but having a russian on the deck during the cold war that's like yeah. not that's not something from even today that would be weird uh yes. the first interracial on-screen kiss the interracial on-screen kiss having a black woman as the communications director um an asian american on the deck it, he was trying to make a statement and it feels like that kind of mapped over into galaxy quest whether or not they intended it that way obviously the end of the movie shows that they're rebooting the series it's coming back and it's called galaxy quest the journey continues do you foresee in the like world of reboots and remakes and whatever that they will ever make a sequel to galaxy quest called galaxy quest the journey continues 
it was supposed to happen. So, and then Alan Rickman passed away. Oh. So in 2015, it was announced it was going to happen. And then Alan Rickman passed. However, it was also later announced that they were going to be doing a full actual TV series. But then I think COVID hit and that killed many a dream. So it's, it, I'm it, obviously oh, wow. it's in the ether. Obviously people want to do it. All the original cast seems like they want to do it. So with the exception of Sam Rockwell, he's too busy being Sam Rockwell. But, but everybody else seems like they would be very on board for it. It would be tough to recreate the magic of the original. So, I mean, Tony, uh, losing Alan Rickman, uh, period, would make it very difficult uh, emotionally for some viewers. But if they can really reinvent it, I mean, they'd almost be better just like completely recasting and doing the series straight. But how do you capture the magic of the film? I wish them luck. I don't know. I don't know if it'll happen. I doubt it. I'm somehow. with you, Reeve. I think I think we best leave this just in the little bubble it is. All right. So thank you, listeners, once again for joining us. And I want to thank Emily Gagne for joining us once again. Thank you for thank coming. Thank you, Becky. It was a pleasure to be here and to talk about these very different movies that are also just so fun to watch. Like I will rewatch them a ton of times after this. I miss the fun popcorn movie. They don't really make these like mid-budget popcorn movies anymore. And I love them. I don't need Oscars. I just need sharks eating people. <laughs> That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> uh, Becky, and- I need you to go through uh, the list of movies you haven't seen and make sure there aren't any big glaring holes like Galaxy <laughs> Quest because I cannot believe I'm still stuck on that. I cannot believe you had never seen this. I am in the process of watching 52, 52 movies for season four of the TV series right now, right. plus the other 42 so we're doing. I'm, I am working on it, I promise. I'm, I'm preaching my to the choir, as we say. Okay, so. <laughs> but Tanana Reeve, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. So please tell people how they can find you and your work and all the amazing stuff you're doing. You're everywhere. Well, as a matter of fact, I just started a, an interview podcast myself with Yay. my husband, Stephen Barnes, called Life Writing, Write for Your Life, which is on Apple Podcasts and wherever you podcast or just lifewritingpodcast.com. And I also sell an online black horror course called The Sunken Place. Com. Fantastic. What, what kind of things can people expect to sort of learn more about in that? Well, actually, it's it's based on my UCLA course. It awesome. continues a lot of the conversations from Horror Noir, breaking it down, but you get to watch the movies and, and adding literature because Horror Noir doesn't include literature, uh, Black horror literature, and an interview with Jordan Peele. He came and Skyped in for the class. Skype, so that'll date him. <laughs> right before he won his Oscar, he Skyped in for the class. So And I'm telling you, the man is brilliant. And he was very generous with his time to do that. So that's just a part included as a part of the course. It's a six week course. Digital download. Take it at your own time. Perfect. Well, that's how everything should be in your own time, especially learning. Uh, I'm so stoked for Nope. I can only begin to describe. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's go. I need to know what's sucking people into the sky. So ready. (laughs) Oh, I'm so stoked. All right, listeners, you can join us in two weeks where we're headed to the year 2010. And we're going to look at two action comedies. It's Kick-Ass and MacGruber. We'll be also joined by the always hilarious Allison Dore. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. 
Today's episode featured Emily Gagné and Tananarive Du as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.